Good morning. It's great to be together to worship the Lord today, isn't it? And we also want to welcome all those who are watching online through BCC or IBCC.tv. Uh, we appreciate you being here. We actually, uh, during the first service, we had a, um, someone viewing online from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which, yeah. So that's uh, Jim Flood and I, we go there uh, every week via Zoom, so it's nice having somebody come this other way. Um, but it's Christmas season, it's great to be able to just share God's word. And as we continue our series on um, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and all of Isaiah 9 is just about hope. It's about the hope that we have. Uh, because before we get to verse 6, we see in verse 2, it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and as people will rejoice, they will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, like warriors dividing a plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. All this passage is about hope in the midst of hopelessness. Because at the time that Isaiah wrote, the people were suffering, they were oppressed, uh, many of the problems they brought on themselves, which is the worst kind of oppression to be under. And Isaiah comes to them and he gives them this message that God is at work. God has a plan and he has, um, he's not just going to work, but he is going to bring about that which you've always longed for. And then we get to verse 6. For a child is born to us and a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will accomplish this. So this is what the season is about. It's a season of hope. And yet, it's not just hope. I mean, the it's almost like there's a dichotomy, like we live in two worlds. I guess we actually do. But especially this Christmas season, there is the, the world of celebrating the, the Savior's birth that we have uh, within Christ and in church and with other believers. And then there's the Christmas world that has taken over all around us. Um, I don't know why, but somehow Lifetime has been on our TV more frequently than it used to be, which was never. I think it's because, and I blame myself, I was slipping through the channels, there was nothing on, and I saw uh, the guy who played one of the Duke brothers on the Dukes of Hazard, and I just had to watch, what's he up to now? Because his career has just taken off since the Dukes. And he was with Reba, you know, so she's an Okie like me, uh, which is why she talks the way she does. Um, and we started watching, it was a Christmas movie. Had nothing to do with anything we just read. Absolutely nothing. None of them do. And, but Christmas, people love Christmas. And I think even, even for those outside of the faith, the people who just kind of marginally, you know, just everybody in general, even the religious aspects of Christmas, they like because this is God safe at Christmas. I mean, think about the songs, many of the, the Christmas carols, I think about away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his what? 
sweet head. Oh, little baby Jesus. Just love the baby Jesus. Nobody's threatened by a baby, right? When the Avengers assemble, Iron Baby doesn't come out. <laughs> and he doesn't. Thor, the infant from Asgard, doesn't show up. And even the Hulk, I mean, the Hulk, yeah, you know. But if he was nine pounds, two ounces, yeah, I don't think people are, even if he's green, nobody's worrying too much about a nine pound, two ounce Hulk. We don't worry about babies. They're safe, right? They're sweet, they're gentle, they're safe. But God's not safe. See, this passage in Isaiah shows us that the one that we celebrate at Christmas, one of his names is Mighty God. Mighty God. And the word mighty has more to do than just the idea that he can do anything. The Hebrew word for mighty carries the idea of undefeated. Undefeated. That every enemy that comes up against him is laid waste. Past, present, future. He is mighty in that nothing can compare to him in heaven or on earth. That this is the mighty God who took on flesh. It is mighty God who became this baby. It is mighty God who grew up and who gave his life on the cross and was raised again on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is who we celebrate. Mighty God made flesh. But who is he? What does the scripture mean when it describes Jesus in this way? Well, a passage that I love uh, that I think just brings, and I say it, I'm sorry, I have a figure, every time I preach, I'll mention a passage, and I say I love this passage. And I do, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, don't we love all of it? It's just, I don't know. But Hebrews chapter 1 is one of those passages that just jumps out. And this is a passage that describes exactly what Isaiah is talking about. The writer of Hebrews begins that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you today, I pray you would open up our eyes to see your son in all his radiance and glory and majesty. Father, let us not just hear about this, but Lord, let us see him. Let us experience your son in his glory and let us walk out if you're changed. Lord, open up the eyes of our heart. Open up our hearts to see you, to feel you, to experience you and to be changed by you. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer of Hebrews, when he describes Jesus, we see three aspects of him that are what Isaiah had in mind when he said mighty God, this undefeated God. And the first is that everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. In the past, it says he, uh, he spoke to the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. He spoke everything into existence, and at the end, everything is still his. It all belongs to him. He is the owner of everything. 
Now, we talk about this. I mean, stewardship basically comes down to understanding God owns everything and I'm just taking care of it. But this is more than just a church idea. I mean, think about this. We like to think in terms of stuff that we own, right? My house, my car, my this, my, my that. Some people use the phrase pet parent when they talk about their dog. I do not. I own that dog. She is mine. And I work to try to get her to do what I want her to do, not to avail, you know, not very successfully. But we like to think that we own things. But have you ever really stepped back and thought about that concept of ownership that we have? I mean, I do this. Maybe I think about things more than I should. But uh, our house, the way it's situated, our windows and our kitchen, it looks out into our, our backyard. And we live on a half acre lot. And we have an old, old oak tree in our backyard. And this thing is giant. And its branches stretch across the property line to the north. And it touches the property line on the south. This is a big tree. And I look at that tree, and I want to think, I own that tree. But that tree was here long before my parents were thought of. And it will be here, Lord willing, long after I'm forgotten. But I own that tree. Really? You know, do we own anything? I think about the house that we, uh, that we live in, the house that we own, when we first looked at it, one of the things that just jumped out is we went down in the basement and there's a, a finished area and a utility area. And inside that utility area, as soon as you go through the door, there's uh, the concrete blocks and there are lines on the blocks. You know what those are for? It's got a name and a date next to every line. It's marking how kids have grown. And there's dates that go back to 1970. Our house was built in 64. There, I didn't see any earlier than that, but there may well be there. You know, because we do that. We get a baby and it, lean them up against the wall and mark off, well, probably not with a baby, but you know, as the kids start, can they can stand, you mark that height. And they're going back for decades. And so we added our grandchildren, but we're just kind of passing through. That house, we live there, we own it, but yet we're not permanent. See, our, our ownership of everything, it's temporary because things will wear out Things are sold, things move on. Even things that burn up, they return to their natural state that they had before they were manufactured. We don't own anything. And yet God's ownership of everything is permanent. It's permanent. He created it all. He sustains it all. He owns it all. It all belongs to him. Nothing we have is truly ours, including our own life. It all belongs to him. And when we look at it in that way, I think about when I was a kid, we used to go fishing all the time. And one of my buddies and I, we'd heard about this pond and it was like, I mean, it was the pond you wanted to go fish. I mean, the bass were jumping, the catfish were there. We spoke of it in hollowed terms. Problem was, there's a big sign on the fence around it. It was on farmland and there's a big sign, no trespassing, no fishing. Well, finally, we just couldn't stand it anymore. Got talking to this friend of mine. was like, you know, we got to go fish this place. Yeah, so we were in sixth grade, so we rode our bikes out there. Uh, it seems like a tornado came rolling through on the way, so we had to hide in a um, culvert underneath the road, and once the storm clouds passed and stopped raining, we rode on over to this pond, and we got out there, and I was like, all right, we're going to catch us some fish. So we, we climbed through the fence and got in there, you know, and, and we just started casting. 
and I'm not making this up, three guys ride up on horses like uh, out of some Western movie. It was like Pa, Haas, and Little Joe, if you're old enough to have watched Bonanza. What are you doing here, boys? Yeah, and it apparently we're fishing. And we weren't quite that haughty because we were there, but they owned it. And we knew we better get out of here and never, ever come back. There was a difference between being a trespasser and the owner. We're all just passing through. He owns it all. He owns everything. And the second thing this passage tells us is that he holds everything together by his spoken word. Verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. The word word in this passage means the spoken word. That just as he spoke the universe into existence, he continues to speak and everything is held together. You know, we like to think that the world is solid, right? This floor is solid. This, this is solid. Uh, I'm kind of squishy, but you know, we're solid. You got solid rock, right? But when you look even on an atomic level and a subatomic level, nothing is solid. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm no scientist. I didn't, you know, I'm a writer. But I do know that everything is made up of atoms, and an atom has a nucleus and protons and electrons and these things spinning around it. Wait a minute, how's it spinning around? It's solid, right? No, it's not. What holds it all together? This passage tells us. It's his spoken word. And we think about, you know, we don't really even contemplate this very often, but did you know, life on earth we take for granted, right? We just take it for granted. But if the earth was any closer to the sun, life would end. We'd all burn up, be too hot to sustain life. If the earth was just a little bit further away, everything would freeze over. We'd all die because it'd be too cold to sustain life. But we're just at this tenuous, this perfect distance for life. And what holds us there? There's no rope from the sun keeping us and spinning us around. It's the word of his power that holds everything together. And the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that everything will one day be destroyed by fire. And that is that he will speak the word and all those bonds that hold everything together in the physical universe. And the physical universe will be gone and will be ushered into eternity. He's the one who holds it all together. What do you do with someone who holds that kind of power? How do you act around somebody with that power? And then the Bible also says in this passage that after he provided purification for sin, that is after he died on the cross and rose again, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, which means he rules over all things. He is in charge over everything. His rule is absolute. You know, I say, well, how does that work, Pastor? You tell me that everything that happens, he's saying it's got to happen, because I've had some bad stuff happen to me. Are you saying that God just wanted that to happen? No, I'm not saying that at all. See, there's this weird balance between people's free will, our fallen nature, and the rule of God. And people are constantly doing things that they just want to get away from God. They want, they want God to tell them what to do, not just individuals, but nations. And the power of God is that he works through all of this chaos and still brings about the results that he wants to bring about. That he is still in control. 
See, the greatest thing that is out of our control is death. It's death. We could walk out of here today, you can get on the interstate, something could happen, gone. Your life is over. And yet when Jesus conquered uh, the grave, he conquered death. And so death has no hold on us anymore. You see, his rule is always there. I think about Corey Ten Boom and just how when the Nazis invaded her home and started beating her and her sister and her father, who was 80 years old, that her dad just glanced over and directed everyone's eyes to a, a little plaque they had over the, uh, over the mantle. And it said, Jesus is ruler. He's in control. He is sovereign over the universe. In the book of Revelation, we see a scene where, um, in chapter 5, where Jesus comes out and he's handed a scroll that is all of human history rests in his hand. And he breaks the seals of that. That is, that history unfolds in a way that he wants it to, to, to come about to his ultimate conclusion. But also in our individual lives, he is in control. He is the ruler. What do we do? He owns everything. He holds everything together. He's in charge over everything. This is the greatness of our God. This is the mighty God, the undefeated God. This is who he is. Now, why don't we see it? Why don't we see it? Well, I think it's because we aren't looking. We're not looking. And Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says that what was made, what may be known about God is plain to them, is plain to us. Because God has made it plain to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What this passage is telling us is that everything that we see that we've talked about already is obvious through all of nature, through all of creation. It's obvious in our own hearts. It surrounds us. It covers us. It's something that is unmistakable. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. That day by day, they just scream out, God is great. But we don't see it. We don't hear it. Why? Because we aren't looking. Now, many years ago, I got to go to New York for a launch of one of my books. And a person I was working with was going to be on the Today Show. And he said, hey, Mark, you can come along. Well, one of my daughters, Sarah, uh, she was a junior in high school, and she had a week off, so I took her with me. And so we go to the Today Show. Now, it was not very exciting. We never saw whoever the stars were at that time. But we go into 30 Rockefeller Plaza, and they direct us into the green room with the guy that I did the book with. So we go into the green room, and there's all these people in there that are going to be on the show. And there's food that's laid down on the tables, you know, for you to enjoy. And that's where we spent our Today Show experience was in the green room. But when we walked in, I remember I, we walked in and I looked and there was Ben Affleck. Now, this was not Batman Ben Affleck. This was teen heartthrob Ben Affleck. This was after uh, Pearl Harbor where, you know, it was like, oh, man, every girl got dreamy-eyed over Ben Affleck for whatever reason. And he's right there. And then we hadn't been there just a couple minutes. And he, it was time for him to go on the show. So he walks over and he walks between the table and my daughter Sarah and I right close and he goes you know and here's my my conversation with Ben Affleck was he said excuse me (laughs) yes you may be excused no I was just like yeah and so he walks out and I nudged my daughter and I said Sarah can you believe it Ben Affleck 
was right there, right there. And her answer to that was, where? <laughs> oh, there's more. I was looking at the muffins because we didn't have breakfast. I was hungry. She missed him because she was looking at a table of muffins. Isn't that how we go through life? The glory of God is right here. And I was looking at my phone. What? I missed it. We aren't looking. And it's not just that we choose that. It's that life gets in the way. We let life distract us. Uh, this was, and that's a strategy of, the, of Satan, of our adversary. When Moses went to the children of Israel in the book of Exodus and he told them, God has sent me, he's going to set you free from your slavery in Egypt. And he told, Moses told Pharaoh the same thing. And this was Pharaoh's response. So the same day, this is the same day that Moses met Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and, that's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. Now what Pharaoh thought was a lie was actually the truth. But that strategy is the same. It's to make their life harder. Make them work more. Make their life busier so they'll pay no attention to the truth. So they pay no attention to God. And isn't that the Christmas season? I mean, we talk about this is, we celebrate the birth of our Savior. But how does Christmas unfold for most of us in our homes? And men, I'm mainly talking about our wives. We just get to observe. It's true in our home. But what happens during Christmas? Well, you got all these Christmas parties you have to go to. I got the office Christmas party, got to do this, got to do that. I got shows if you have young children. Well, I've got this Christmas concert I have to go see and this Christmas play, and there's all these things I'm rushing around to see. And then, oh, by the way, we got to figure out what we're going to buy everybody. And we also have to order, figure out where we're going to get it because things are in short supply and the things that I really wanted to get them, it is no, not in stock. What am I going to get them instead? And so we're trying to figure out what we're going to buy everybody, what kind of gifts we're going to give. And then we got to wrap them. Then we got to do all this other stuff. And then there's the family gatherings, right? Okay, when's everybody coming in? And if you have grown children, are they all going to get along? It's true, right? If you have grown kids. How are we going to navigate through all that with our kids and the in-laws, you know, their spouses and all that kind of stuff? How are we going to coordinate all of this? And we got all this stuff going on. And the season of celebrating the birth of Christ turns into the season of being worn out. And we don't see what's most important. But that's just life, right? That's why the Bible tells us to be still and know that he is God to carve out time to stand back and to contemplate and to see the glory and the wonder of our God that is obvious to us, to sit and to think about these ideas, to think about the idea that, my word, he owns everything. I own nothing. It's all his. To think about what would it happen if he stopped speaking everything into existence, if he stopped holding everything together by the word of his power, to contemplate how he's ruler over all things and to step back and look at our life and to see that even through the chaos, we see the hand of God and the faithfulness of God. And 
just the wonder of how even when we leave him, he never leaves us. To stand back and just contemplate all that so we can see this mighty God that Isaiah spoke of. And when we do that, our lives will change. Because when you contemplate, when you get into the presence of the mighty God, something happens. And the first thing that happens is just abject humility comes over you. No one was closer to Jesus than John, the, uh, the apostle, one of the disciples. One of the, he wasn't just one of the 12. He was part of the inner core, the inner three. When Jesus was transfigured on a mountain where his glory shone through, he had with him Peter, James, and John. On the night that Jesus uh, had his final Passover meal with his disciples, there was one person who leaned up against Jesus. It was John. Leaned up against him when Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed. John, leaning up against him, looked up and said, surely not I, Lord. That's how close John was to Jesus. Now, listen to what happened when he saw Jesus in his glory after Jesus' resurrection. John had a vision and he said, and I turned around to see a voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, like the crashing of the sea. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The one who was closer to Jesus than anyone else, who sees him in his glory, falls at his feet as though dead. That's what we mean by humility. Who am I to be in your presence? We fall at his feet. There's that awareness of our, our, our um, mortality. There's an awareness of our sinfulness. There's an awareness of how unworthy we are to be in his presence. But more than that, we're just aware of his greatness and our nothingness. And we fall at his feet as though dead. That is the definition of humility before God. And it's also so lacking. It's so lacking. You know, some people say that we are at a point in our nation that we're most divided we've ever been. I don't think that's true. I think we're at a point where we're more pride-filled than we've ever been. Our politics today, it's the politics of pride. I know so much. People on the other side, they're just dumb. Man, look out. <laughs> they don't know anything. I'm up here. They're down here. I know everything. They know nothing. It's the politics that we have. How could they think these things? How could they believe these things? You really think that the politics of pride, racism, racism is just pride. I'm better than somebody else because of the amount of melanin in my skin. What? I'm better than somebody else because I speak English and they can only speak Spanish and some English. It's more languages than I speak. It's all about pride. But when you come into the presence of God, I'm telling you, when you're at his feet as though dead, you're not looking down on anyone. You're not even looking across at anyone. Woe is me. 
Humility. That's where we got to begin. The Bible says in Psalm 110, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what is described here. Now, I was, I've been, uh, Pastor Mark asked me to preach this message weeks ago. And so I had it running through my head and getting it down, being ready. And this morning I'm contemplating, I'm praying through this, and the Lord just nailed me right here. Because I wanted to say, well, I struggle with pride. I struggle with pride sometimes. And that's an easy excuse. Because I don't struggle with pride. I struggle with being in the presence of God. Because the more you're in the presence of God, there is no room for pride. God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to those who will stand up next to the glorious God and say, yeah, what else you got? You made the universe? Okay, big deal. What else you got? Humility, the Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who have fallen before him. And that's what we do. See him for who he is. The second thing that happens when we come into God's presence is surrender. Surrender. Isaiah, earlier in the book of Isaiah, he describes a vision that he had where he was taken into the throne room of heaven. And when he saw the Lord in his glory, and he saw the angels singing above him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah looks around and he says, woe is me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What was me means, basically he said, I'm a dead man. I should not be here because I'm a sinful man, and my sin is right there on my lips. And the Lord reached down and purified him, which is what Jesus did on the cross. He purified him. And then Isaiah heard the Lord say, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Isaiah looks around. Here am I. Send me. This is what Jesus talked about when he, uh, in the parable of the pearl of great price. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The merchant found the one thing he'd spent his entire life searching for, and he said, now that I found this, nothing else matters. See, that's what Isaiah is expressing when he says, here am I, send me. Once we understand who he is, when we see him in his greatness and his glory, what else are we going to pursue? What else are we going to pursue? Because then we hear him say, people are hurting. Who am I going to send? Well, Lord, here am I, send me. There's people, I mean, the, um, I am the global peace pastor so you know I'm going to talk about peace, but you know what the peace plan is? Somebody asked me yesterday, the other day, what is the peace plan? Basically, the peace plan comes down to this. When we say ordinary people empowered by God, making a difference together wherever they are, what it really is is ordinary people whose eyes have been opened to the glory of God, who see him for who he is and who realize his kingdom is the only thing that matters, and then they hear the Lord say, there's somebody over there, there's people who are struggling in illness and disease and is a chronic condition, Who's, who can help them? I can help them, Lord. There's people who are over here who are struggling with, it's not just poverty, it's that they're trapped in a position in life where they can't get out and they're hurting and no matter how hard they work, they can't seem to get ahead and they've just about given up. Who can I send? I'll go. 
See, it's all about the kingdom. It's all about being a person sent by God, empowered by God, just putting ourselves at his disposal and saying, Lord, I want my life now to count for what matters. And that is you and your kingdom, your power, your glory. It's just to make you, your name great on this earth, Lord. Because what else is there? What else is there? That's what we see when we get into his presence. And it's a surrender. Here am I, Lord. Send me. And then the last thing that just flows when we see him for who he is, is love. Jesus said the greatest commandment is this. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus said this in the book of Mark. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. That is with everything that's in you, love him. There's a lot of times in sermons like this, this is like, you know, God is great. God is powerful. God is ruler of everything. Now get your life together. That's, isn't that usually, you're going to go to hell if you don't. Get your life together. Don't you know who he is? Come on, man. That's not biblical. It's not even close to being biblical. Here's what's biblical. When you see the greatness and the glory of our God, you know what you see? You see the one that in, in Revelation when John fell on his face and so dead, reached down and picked him up. When Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone, is the one who reached out and took away everything that prevented Isaiah from being in the presence of God. What you see when you see the greatness of our God is you see the greatness of his love toward you. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 said, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is what we come up against. It's the love of God. The love of God that says, we come to him and say, who am I, Lord? And he says, yeah, but... I love you. I've chosen you. This is the love that we see in this Christmas story. Is that mighty God would take on flesh and would become an infant and would grow up and would die upon a cross and then would conquer death and rise again. But why would he go through all of that? Why would he do that? It's because he loves you. He loves you with a love that your mind cannot comprehend. That if we sit and we just contemplate this for the rest of our lives, we'll only scratch the surface at how deep God's love is for you. And this isn't just some religious idea. You know, I remember uh, as a little kid, said this before, but I just remember getting mad at someone and saying, man, I hate that guy. And then one of my friends, you know, because we're in Sunday school when I said this, would always say, well, you know, Mark, you're supposed to love everybody. Well, yeah, I love him in God's way, but, you know, I really can't stand the guy. And if something happened to him, I wouldn't be very upset. That's not love. This isn't some religious concept. This is real. This is real life. That God loves you. Mighty God, the ruler over the universe, who holds it all in the hollow of his hand. The one who holds everything together by his mighty power, just by his spoken word loves you. And how do we respond when we see that kind of love? It's just to love him back. Just to love him back. 
What does the Lord your God require of you? To love him. To love him. Because when you do, everything else falls away. This is the mighty God. This is the message of Christmas. Now, you may be here today and you have not experienced this love in a personal way. You've always thought God was very distant. God is very harsh. No, he loves you. Today, you can experience that love. You can say yes to him. We have over on the side here, we have a yes table. And this is a place where if you're here today and you want to know more about what it means to have a relationship with, with the Lord, if you want to know what it means to give your life fully to Christ and what all those implications, the yes table, one of our elders will be there and can answer those questions and will pray with you as you enter into this new life with Christ. That's what this season is about, to receive that greatest gift. But more than that, we're, we're going to have a time of communion. Pastor Paul is going to introduce here in just a moment. And as we do communion, this is a time to commune with God. And this is a time just to really to stop, to shut out the noise, and to focus on who he is. And allow his touch, allow his glory just to overwhelm you. And then we'll walk out of here different. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for those that are here today that have never experienced your love personally. And Lord, even right now, there's all kinds of reasons running through their head of why they shouldn't surrender everything to you. Father, I pray you would overwhelm them with your love right now. Father, they would see how wide and how, how high and how, how deep your love is for them. And Lord, that they would throw themselves into your arms. Lord, they turn loose of whatever it is they've been holding on to instead of pursuing you. And Lord, just surrender it all. And Father, I pray your love would so overwhelm so that we won't, even as the, all, those, all those things tick into our heads of why we're not good enough or why we don't deserve this. Lord, I pray you just overwhelm those reasons with your love because, Lord, honestly, none of us deserve this. Who am I that I can't even speak of you today? Lord, who are any of us? And yet you have chosen to love us. So I pray, Father, for those who are struggling right now with that relationship with you that they will simply say yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I want you. And Father, I pray for those who have been walking <clears throat> with you for some time. Lord, give us a fresh vision of who you are. Lord, let your glory fill this place. Father, let your presence fill this place as we enter into a time of communion. Lord, let your power just overwhelm us and let your love fill us. Lord, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.